Welcome to the latest in the Aon UK DC Survey 2020 podcast series. The series looks in detail at the key insights from the survey, and we hear from Aon's DC experts on their views following the outcome of the survey. We can't ignore what's gone on in the world since the new year, and clearly this interview was actually recorded prior to some of these events unfolding. Nonetheless, what we're hearing from the experts today is valid looking forward in relation to investments within DC plans. We have uh, Chris Inman and Joe Sharples, who I'll let introduce themselves. Chris, you first. Hello, everyone. My name's Chris Inman, and I'm head of DC Investment Advisory. So my basic role is turning the best investment ideas into innovative uh, investment strategies for our DC clients. Hi, I'm Jo Sharples and I'm responsible for our DC investment funds that we offer across our DC solutions. My role is to look after those funds and make sure they're structured to meet the needs of our members. Thank you both. Now the survey is entitled the DC Scheme Survey, How Do You Measure Up? And the DC investment section within that covers a number of things. We're going to try and cover those off today. So who wants to go first? I'll go first. You're going to talk a little bit about the findings in relation to default funds and investing through to retirement. Yeah, so I was going to pick up about the target that we're seeing default funds using at retirement. And from our survey, we saw that the overwhelming majority of people said that they had a flexible target at retirement. And that's aligned for people who want flexibility, for example, to access drawdown or perhaps to stay invested for a period of time. Alongside that, we also saw a further 25% said they had a a target that was based on more of a combination of metrics, but again, supporting that theme of more flexibility. Interestingly, we'd seen the target, the proportion targeting annuity purchase had fallen to around 20%. So that's a big drop, but it does align with what we're seeing in the market because we've seen a lot less demand for members buying annuities at retirement. Currently, it's only around 10 to 15% of members who actually do go out and buy an annuity. That makes a lot of sense to us, and we do support that flexible approach as giving a good balance for members at retirement. However, one of the challenges that a flexible approach can bring is the range of choices that members are faced with at retirement. And there are ways of helping your members with this. One of, one of these is to offer access to a preferred drawdown solution, and I think that's a great start for members. However, the number of schemes that we see doing that is still quite small, just over a third of our respondents. And of those people who are offering a preferred drawdown solution, the majority of those, and that was over 80%, actually use the provider's own solution. Why do you think so few schemes are taking up that sort of opportunity to point people in the right direction? I think there's a challenge around being seen to be giving advice, but actually by having a preferred solution, it does help make things easier for members and also helps them getting into difficulty, for example, around pension scams. One of the things I think schemes can do a lot more of is to to go down that route and to have a preferred solution. But I'd also encourage you to shop around when you do that and not just fall into the, the default position because there is a a plethora of solutions and different charges out there. And so it's really important that you make sure you know what your members are getting and also what they're paying for. The other aspect is around annuity purchase. I said that many schemes are not seeing their members buying an annuity, but actually they can still have a role to play and it's always worth getting your members to check what's out there. 
Solutions like our Aon Retirement Surface have built in an open market annuity broking within them. And that means they're a really easy and efficient way of bringing that element to your members. And finally, on this around advice and guidance, there is plenty of guidance available to your members. And a lot of it is about reminding them what they can access and also giving them wider options. So, for example, if they want to go out and take independent financial advice, giving them the links to sites where they can find an advisor. The other aspect is looking further ahead into the future. We are starting to see the emergence of robo advice. And this is something that we're trialing with a couple of clients to see how that works. Is there a barrier still around sort of paying for advice? That seems to be a bit of a problem with some schemes. Yes, I think... One of the challenges with paying for independent advice is actually it can be quite expensive. And if it's done properly, member might be looking at around three to four thousand pounds to get that advice. If you've got a really large pot, that's fine. You can afford that. But if you're talking about a fund value of, say, 30 to 40,000, that starts to feel like a lot of money to pay up front. And this is where we see solutions like the robo advice, where it might be sort of two to three hundred pounds rather than in the thousands. We can see that really appealing to members. I hear quite often clients talk about sort of to and through retirement, what's what happens next and how they how they move from the existing plan into the new post-retirement environment. What sort of things are we seeing in that space? So we're seeing a lot more of those to and through retirement solutions. One of the things I really like about solutions that are done well is where you've got funds that continue all the way through. So you might have the same fund range before and after, so you don't have to transfer. That's something that we do in our own master trust, and I think that's really beneficial for members. I think equally, there's a lot of solutions where there is a disconnect and members have to switch. So actually thinking about that member journey, also thinking about the cost that members charge, because you can encounter hidden charges in that aspect. All of those things are really important to getting that right solution for your members. Just a different challenge, Chris, from uh, in the advisory environment for the sort of moving into post-retirement environment. What, what are you seeing there? Yeah, it is a challenge when we're seeing a lot of single employer trusts not necessarily wanting to have that to and through retirement facility set up. The discussions are more around putting in place preferred IFA panels, as Joe was talking about, or a preferred provider. Through the survey, there was a lot of members that see the current solution or their current provider or their platform provider being the the natural avenue for them to go down. So not seeking advice, not going to market, not getting the best deal. If we look around the globe, as, as Joe said, the master trusts here look a lot like the super funds uh, in Australia and some of the structures in the US. So having that facility that seamlessly takes them from the accumulation to the decumulation makes a great deal of sense, saves money, gets that value for members and leads to that sustainable retirement. I guess that's a, a, a governance challenge and one we probably tackle under a a different podcast but we can all look forward to that one in terms of moving on joe i mean in terms of how we are seeing this converting into improving member outcomes which is a big theme coming through from the survey as well what's what are your thoughts on that yeah so as well as the the whole question about how we help members at retirement i think the other bit is actually making sure that we've we've they've got enough when they actually get there and when we looked at some of the other results from the survey, we're focusing on investment objectives. It was around about 72% of schemes told us that their overall objectives included delivering better outcomes for their members. But then when we look back at the data, we could see, actually see that over two thirds of schemes then didn't know what those outcomes actually looked like to start with. And that suggests that the reality of it is actually quite different from what schemes are hoping for or, or aspiring to. 
And I think understanding those expected outcomes and what your members are likely to get at retirement is a really important first step in that journey. But then we also want to think about how the investment strategy can help to deliver that. And our target-driven investment approach is all about that member outcome journey. And it starts with determining a return objective for your members that's linked to an expected outcome at retirement. And that can be easily tailored to reflect the specifics of your scheme and what you think your members are looking for. We see that return objective as being really closely linked to inflation, something that um, has a real clear link for members and what they need at retirement. So the next path for us is thinking about how that return objective is delivered. And as part of that, we recognise that a member's ability to adjust changes over time if things don't go to plan. So, for example, for somebody who started off their career, they have much greater ability to change their retirement plans if, for example, they don't get the investment returns, whereas for someone closer to retirement, they have limited tools at their disposal because they're actually about to retire. And to help with that, we've been thinking about risk in terms of the actions a member might want to take to get back on track. So, for example, if they're paying higher contributions or perhaps if they're retiring later. That analysis leads us to having a higher return target early on and gradually reducing that return target as members get closer to retirement. With those return objectives, we can then use that as a framework to set the asset allocation for the default strategy. Now, I know that probably doesn't sound like rocket science, but essentially we flipped what we do with the current approach on its head, where actually at the moment we start with the asset mix and then we can derive a return objective for that. But what the approach also brings with it is the ability to adjust that asset mix if markets do really well. And we can see the strategy is ahead of where we were planning. So actually, we don't need to get as much going forward. So it means we've got the potential to reduce the risk within the strategy earlier than we thought. And that dynamic approach brings multiple benefits for members. But essentially, it's all about delivering those outcomes and delivering them with greater certainty for for members and improving that journey. And I think that's something that we can do really well within the investment strategy by bringing in those return objectives. I think, yeah, so that's the idea of focusing on what's actually relatable for members as part of that investment discussion is uh, is going to be key to that, isn't it? The other side of it is going to be what you use within those asset models, how you actually deliver those returns within that risk framework that you've developed. So, Chris, just uh, get your thoughts on that, if I may, on uh, what you might put in the box marked growth or pre-retirement or whatever other labels you might put on it yeah so i'm going to go into this in a little bit more detail on my sections um just coming back to joe's points i think this is key in terms of evolving the current lifestyle strategies to better target the outcomes to take into consideration market experience and then tailor that journey for members is going to be absolutely key in terms of the the building blocks if we call them that the underlying investments not a great deal is going to change from current in terms of early on we want to be getting that equity risk premium we want to be getting returns significantly above inflation and we want to do it at a reasonable cost so the current strategies we have there in terms of factor investing maybe some real assets but mainly market beta mainly equity beta i think that's going to persist it's where we get later on in the savings journey where we need inflation linkage. We need to cut off that left tail or cut off those real significant losses that might come through like we saw in 2008. That's where I think currently the investments available in DC are somewhat lacking. That's where the innovation is going to come along with our more 
more considered focus on that outcome and that smoother return profile. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and you, you mentioned that you're going to go on to talk a bit more about the uh, detail of that in terms of what lies beneath. So what are your thoughts on that? So there's two there's two areas I'm going to talk about. The first one, I'm going to say the survey findings were a little bit surprising. And the second one, I'm going to say were a little bit underwhelming. So there's some suspense for you. So we'll start off with the, the little bit surprised one. So the the one I was surprised about was when we asked respondents whether they wanted more asset classes, more opportunities to invest across their DC schemes and their assets, only 6% said they wanted to. For me, that's a little bit of a surprise, particularly when we're talking about real assets and alternatives. When we look around the globe and more mature uh, DC markets, again, like Australia, Canada to a degree, US, we see a large use of alternative assets. We see them used in the growth phase. We see them used in the decumulation phase, basically all the way through. The reason I was surprised around this was because the things that alternative assets bring us in terms of proper diversification away from equities, inflation linkage, which we're currently lacking uh, in DC and the UK. We have linkers, but they're not necessarily fit for purpose when we're talking about CPI inflation. Um, and we also want to cut off, as I said, that downside loss. We want to cut off that left tail. We want to cut off those 2008 situations. And these are things that alternative assets, particularly things like private debt, infrastructure, real estate debt can bring to the market and can bring to DC savers. If we think about the challenges, the reasons why respondents might have said this may have been somewhat concerned. For me, it kind of boils down to three areas. The first is probably around education. If consultants aren't talking to trustees about this, if they aren't comfortable with the solutions, if they aren't comfortable with the asset classes, that's going to be difficult to get hold of. Number two, it's the governance around that. It is extra work. It is a bit harder than just putting your money into listed assets. You have to think about drawdowns. You have to think about reinvesting the assets as they come through, as the income comes through. So that's another potential hindrance. And the third one I think is probably the most important. I think people worry about liquidity particularly with headlines like Woodford, et cetera, uh, and property funds gating, they worry whether putting their members' assets into a liquid strategies or alternatives may lead to adverse outcomes, particularly if there's a shock in the market. For me, these are all things that can fairly easily be overcome in terms of having a better discussion, having education sessions uh, with your with your consultant at conferences, et cetera. Uh, and also setting up the structures. So it's quite important in terms of those white labeled structures, future proofing the investment strategy that we can build structures around those that touch wood. If they were to gate, if something was to happen in terms of the liquidity profile, we can use other assets for that short term to make uh, assets available to members. Uh, so education is a big piece in that uh, that you've said there, Chris. And I think the, just the other point you're making about accessing that market what are you seeing from the providers and the platforms in terms of accessing and allowing addition of such funds to platforms etc yeah so we're, we're seeing a few strategies come to market already so there are some issues operationally and fund structure wise that uh, make these strategies less likely to be made available so some have overcome that in terms of what we're seeing now, there's a lot more discussion, a lot more positive noise in terms of making these strategies available. So the the hookup on daily dealing 
isn't something that's actually a concern, isn't something that's actually a hindrance. So platforms are listening to that now and they're starting to make available strategies that might be monthly dealt, semi-annual dealt, etc. So we are getting access to better funds, better investment managers and therefore better strategies for clients. So what's currently on the table, it's okay, but it's improving. And I guess we're seeing a scale now in the DC market to... to that would actually support accessing some of these funds that may may not have been an option before. So someone like Nest always gets spoken about. Their operational structure allows them to access these things a lot easier or a lot simpler way than most DC schemes in the UK. But yes, the scale of someone like Nest initially beats that path, leads that way and lets other people follow along. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd always also add the price question, and I, I hate to bring it back to price, but a lot of these strategies are more expensive than the sort of more traditional passive strategies. And there's a really good reason for that. But I think that's one of the challenges for getting them into strategies that we often find people are very focused on that ultimate price to members. And that will in turn come back to the education piece that Chris talked about is actually if people can see the benefits of this, then actually they might think, yes, this is something that's worth paying for. And so we'll, we'll include that in our strategy. And I guess as part of a blend or some sort of white label, you're, you're going to be able to manage that, that cost to other funds as well. Yeah, as Joe said, it comes back to we've been beating the drum for value, not cost. Mm-hmm. So it may cost a little bit more, but the value it uh, provides members, yeah, very worth it. Okay, well, thanks for that. In terms of the other probably big issue that's being discussed by everybody at the moment, Chris, is... Uh, Responsible investment, not that we weren't responsible before, but we seem to be even more responsible now, apparently. Much more responsible, apparently. So yeah, to, to John's already broken the suspense there that uh, my, my underwhelming uh, finding from the survey was around responsible investing or environmental, social and governance um, implementation within DC schemes. So the piece that I was a little bit underwhelmed around was that only 10% of respondents said that they'd actually assessed their investment strategies against ESG type criteria. So i.e. gaining transparency of how their managers are actually investing, how responsible they are, how sustainable those strategies are. Um, And we also found that about 8% had actually implemented one or more ESG funds or responsible investing funds within their default strategy. As I said, a little bit surprising. I thought the number might be a little bit higher, but understandably this, as you said, we were always responsible But in terms of that push from regulation, push from members, push from the general population, the sentiment around this has been in the last couple of years, particularly in the UK. So probably not that surprising that action hasn't been taken. There's a lot of discussions that Joe, you, myself are having and all our colleagues are having with clients around, what does this actually mean for you? What does this mean for your members? What are your beliefs? What are your policies? How do we get that transparency? And then how do we evolve the investment strategy? So again, bunging on the accent uh, a little bit stronger for five seconds. Australia, we went through similar discussions kind of 10, 15, 20 years ago around stranded assets. Uh, Not surprising that a good chunk of our um, equity market is uh, allocated to people that dig stuff out of the ground and, and sell it, particularly through Asia. Knowing that our economy was linked to that, jobs were linked to that, and our pension savings were linked to that, thinking very strongly and considered in a considered manner how those stranded assets might impact those retirement outcomes. Was there a risk there? Obviously, there is a risk there. Whether it happens tomorrow, five years, 10 years' time, not necessarily a concern. 
what the concern is. There's a risks there. We can mitigate those risks. Why would we not do this? So my overall kind of message is always around we consider responsible investing in ESG type factors special today. I've even heard some people maybe in inverted commas call them a fad. My real hope is that this becomes just part of investing. When we think about investing for the future, investing in companies and strategies that will make us money in five and ten years time, that's just good practice. That's fiduciary responsibility. So nothing that I say here is special or new. The fact that it's being taken a little bit more seriously is the real bright light for me. And the implementation report this year where people need to actually disclose how they've acted on this, I think that might lead to a bit more action. Yeah, so there's the there's the overarching view and strategy that the sponsor perhaps and that the trustees have if there are trustees involved, which is kind of embedded in the way in which they go about their governance and the way in which they assess fund managers, etc. And that will only increase over time is what you're saying. But the other end of the spectrum is actually how it lands in the member space, if you like, and how they respond to it and the extent to which they're going to demand that pace of change. Yes, hopefully hopefully that push comes through. And if any members are listening, please write into your DC schemes asking them such questions, uh, particularly the ones that I help out on because they're, they're great questions. They really engage the trustees and, and really put us to work. Um, but yeah, where, where we have spoken to clients and where we've seen the most action, it's the ones that have really good corporate social responsibility policies, as you said, that DC savers and any employee comes into work for an organization. They know the beliefs behind that organization. They know the philosophy. They see uh, recycle bins in the office. They see keep cups being used around. So they're getting that message loud and clear day to day. Even I've got a keep cup. Yeah, purpose. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Thanks for no, that. No, no worries. You can pay me later. <laughs> um, uh, but when they look at their pension scheme, none of that's reflected in there. So where we're linking up that engagement with the organisation, engendering pride with the organisation, bringing that across to the DC savings, where various surveys have shown that members say that they will be more engaged, they will be more interested in their pensions if they were invested in a more sustainable manner. My always thinking, and we have a partnership with Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership that don't necessarily listen to what people say, watch what they do. So we did a great study with Cambridge that looks at revealed preference of members. Please see the study. I'm sure we'll link it up with the survey. But the high level was there that members are willing to potentially forego some returns to avoid the worst funds. And when I say worst, the least sustainable so there's some sort of risk aversion there in terms of investing in the worst funds and it's highest with those at the younger end of your membership spectrum. So when we're talking about communications and engagement, we often scratch our head about those younger members. This is just one of those great tools to engage with them and we're investing more sustainably and we should generate higher returns off the back of this. So it's all wrapped up into one and one of those great opportunities to link up investment with pensions, with engagement. And it's interesting to, to hear that people are actually prepared in some instances to forego returns if necessary in order to achieve those sort of broader objectives, which is, I think, a, an important thing for trustees and sponsors to bear in mind when they're devising investment strategies. Yeah, agreed. For me, it's, it's the direction of travel. They've given us a clear remit to implement these, to think a little bit harder about responsible investing and make it happen within the pension scheme. Okay. Well, thank you. Joe and Chris, that's been incredibly interesting uh, insight into some of the responses we've seen from the survey. You're very welcome. No worries, John. 
Thanks to all of those tuning in and listening to the podcast. And don't forget, if you want a copy of the survey, please do click on the link in the podcast text. Alternatively, you can email us at talktoasataon.com or contact your usual Aeon consultant. 